Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we're talking about mental illness. We're talking about destigmatizing our mental health care. Why is it such a problem to talk about and seek care. So today we're going to treat it like just another health issue and take mental illness out of the closet. And my first guest is crusading to do just that. Dr. Patrick Corrigan is the distinguished professor of psychiatry at the Illinois Institute of Technology, and he strives to make it easier to disclose and discuss mental health issues. Welcome, Dr. Corrigan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is a big subject. Let's talk about the kinds of stigma that is present in, in healthcare or just at large in the world. So it's important to keep in mind the stigma of illness, stigma of mental illness is probably as bad as the illness itself. It shows itself in different ways. And one way to look at it is public stigma. What happens when the public buy into the stereotypes about people with mental illness being dangerous or incompetent and the like leads to discrimination. I'm not going to hire them. I'm not going to rent to them. I'm not going to provide a good standard of care. Self-stigma is what happens if you are a person with mental illness and you internalize these stereotypes. You feel less confident about yourself, less able, leads to what we've called the why try effect. Why should I try to get a job? Somebody like me is not worthy of it. Yeah. And the third kind of stigma to be concerned about is the kind that pushes people away from treatment. You know, fundamentally, mental illness is hidden, and so the way you get the label is you know you're being seen by a psychiatrist or at a mental health clinic, and so people won't go. People just won't go into care in order to avoid the label. Well, I think that the, and the label then comes with a whole host of other identifiers that I'm, I'm crazy, right? If I seek mental health care, I'm crazy or I'm not able to take care of myself and somebody's going to take my power or sense of control away from me. I think that that's also part of the fear. I think a huge part of the fear is because you're not crazy, you're competent, um, people are going to rob your decisions away from you. I think mental health service systems in the past have been very guilty of that. I think modern service systems are based on self-determination. The idea is that People with mental illness need to clearly know what their options are and then decide for themselves what to do. Even if their options, by the way, are contrary to what I might think as a clinical psychologist, because at the end of the day, they know their their needs and how to go forward from there. And their readiness. I mean, I and think readiness ready. is a huge part of this. Yeah, though it's interesting what exactly is readiness. I mean, sometimes readiness is... I think a person should do this and they think they should do that um, is an issue of they're not ready or is it an issue of we just 
view their needs and priorities differently, in which case, usually their view should trump out, their view should win. But isn't readiness also when you get to a place in your life, and I'm not even talking about solely with psychological health care, that when the insanity that you're doing you know, you keep doing it, trying to get a different result and nothing is changing. And then you say, okay, I tap out. Something's got to give. Something has to change. Yeah, for me, I'm not always sure there's such a black and white moment. Um, Clearly, I think people get stuck. People who are stuck don't understand that they have options, can't foresee what their goals are. So anything that helps them get a better sense of the of the range of possibilities in their life is clearly makes them more ready for moving ahead, for having a more satisfying, happy life. Someone that is sitting at home and saying, you know what, I, I just feel like crap. I have no motivation. I'm tired. And I'm also sick and tired of being sick and tired. I don't want to go for therapy because I don't believe in therapy. How would you approach inviting somebody who's in that position, and there are many, there are a lot of people in that position, to um, open their eyes and their mind to a a different path to get help? Well, I guess I would tell them that there's many different ways to go. I'm not necessarily sure, and I say this as a licensed psychologist, I'm not necessarily sure that therapy um, or medical treatment is the way to go for everybody. Um, frequently faith-based communities, culturally sensitive um, strategies may be more relevant. Um, Peer approaches may be more relevant. Um, I would encourage them to look at the variety of things. If the traditional medical model doesn't work for them, perhaps one of these other approaches would make sense. I really appreciate hearing this from you because it it allows options. And sometimes we, 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 tend to report for for care in a sideways fashion. In other words, you can take a faith-based approach or a peer mentoring approach and realize it's not enough. And once you feel comfortable with being a little bit vulnerable and communicating on that level, you may be, one, may be open to seeking a higher level of care or a different kind of care. Absolutely. I mean, again, it comes back to we want to empower the person so they're in the driver's seat. And we want to educate them on the vast range of options. Um, And I think sometimes what's interesting about education is professionals' reflexive way of responding to that as other professionals. I think, you know, non-traditional complementary medicine has relevance. Again, I go back to faith-based services. Faith-based communities are really important to a huge number of your listeners. I'm keeping that in mind, not all faiths, are able to provide the kind of services you need. But like therapists, we encourage people to shop around, to test out, to see who's going to give them the kind of feedback that will help them go forward. Your book, The Stigma of Disease and Disability, really goes into this in detail. And I also want to add that you're a principal investigator of the National Consortium for Stigma and Empowerment, which is a collaboration of investigators and advocates from more than a dozen institutions. So this stigma, the stigma thing is big. And I, I, I applaud you for, for researching and writing um, about ways that might help us, those who feel stigmatized. Yeah, um, I think our research is particularly interested less in understanding what it is, because I think all the listeners can pretty easily understand what stigma is. It's any kind of disrespect of a group. The stigma of mental illness is the same category as racism, sexism, and ageism. And we're much more interested in how to fix it. I think one of our take-home messages is what might seem to be a natural approach really doesn't work too well, which is education. Research pretty much shows going around teaching everybody that mental illness is a brain disorder and it's treatable really doesn't change attitudes or improve stigma. Really what does is contact, is interactions with people in recovery. And a great analogy is, you know, in my lifetime, we've changed the stigma about LGBTQ community hugely, not because in school we teach kids it's genetic, 
it's now because they're able to have teachers who are gay or my children have two uncles who are gay or we have a minister who's gay. People came out. And so I think that applies similarly to dealing with the stigma of mental illness. People need to disclose. And when you look at mental illness, and I can speak from my own personal experience of having had um, terrible depression in the past and really worked hard at reconnecting with society because most of us when we're in or we're in a deep depression we disconnect our lives become very constricted and we do the bare minimum to get by so this idea that you can re-engage with life you can lean into life and rely on a community and talk openly about feelings is part of the treatment absolutely um, whether you're in a office with a psychoanalyst or you're with peers, at the end of the day, we know we're successful to the degree to which you're engaging with loved ones and peers. So the analyst just helps you do that, but you kind of skip that whole step and go directly to finding loved ones and peers who will accept you as a whole and you can share your experiences with them. You are part uh, of a team that developed a program called HOP. Talk a little bit about the work and how it's serving people in this way. So Honest, Open, Proud, HOP was developed by people with lived experience. And by the way, like yourself, so am I. Um, I've been hospitalized for mental illness, took my meds this morning. And again, like the gay community, we've learned that people who decide to come out um, can deal with stigma better. And so HOP is a program that helps people decide the pros and cons of disclosing and how to do it. Well, I, I think that normal is highly overrated. I mean, that's that's where I've evolved to over these past, you know, 25 years since it happened to me. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Dr. Patrick Corrigan and talk about his book, The Stigma of Disease and Disability. To learn more, please visit the HOP program at hopprogram.org. On Twitter, you can connect with Dr. Corrigan at HOP program. And on Facebook, that's Hop H-O-P program. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are taking mental illness out of the closet and working on destigmatizing it with my guest today, Dr. Patrick Corrigan, who is the author of The Stigma of Disease and Disability. He is also part of a team that developed the HOP program for honest, open, and proud destigmatization or anti-stigma programs. So Pat, prior to the break, we... we shared a, a, a common challenge that each of us has dealt with, and that being depression. And um, talk a little bit about ways in which we can reduce stigma, not only for ourselves, but in our communities. Yes, yeah, so it's important to keep in mind there's 
essentially two types of stigma, as I said, public stigma and self-stigma. Um, public stigma is really torn down when the public has a chance to interact with people in recovery. So just the stories you and I share here, the stories with anybody who have uh, dealt with mental health challenges, really educates everybody else about how uh, stigma should be overcome, how people with mental illness are just like you and me. Yeah. And the other stigma is self-stigma. And I can tell you being in a closet is horrible for your mental health. And so the degree to which people choose to come out and share that with other people or really tear down the stigma. And so honest, open, proud is meant to address both. Um, first is the degree to which you, um, uh, I'm sorry, my dog's making noise. I hear, hear your dog, and I was going to say, that's there's an antidepressant walking in the room right there. It's the dog. She uh, just went to see my wife. <laughs> um, and so Honest, Open, Proud is meant to address both stigmas. Um, again, the degree to which people come out is the degree to which they're less self-stigmatized or more empowered. And the more of us that are out, the more we tear down the public stigma. Um, that said, I want people listening in really to understand, naively, I would never suggest you just run right out and share with a stranger your mental health history. Um, it's clearly got risks, or you and I wouldn't be talking about this today. Honest, Open, Proud is really meant for you to consider these risks with peers, with other people who are also wondering about coming out with a mental health closet. And if so, what's your story? Um, it is your story. And so how are you going to share that with other people? And, you know, it's sharing the story, like like we said earlier, it is part of the, the healing process. And I do know that, you know, in a traditional um, psychotherapeutic education, you know, how um, therapists are educated, self-disclosure, and maybe it's changing now, but certainly when I went to school, self-disclosure was not part of how we worked with clients. Um, therapist self-disclosure like you, when I went to school, we were explicitly told not to. Yeah. Uh, I, there are colleagues I have at University College London who are actually developing Honest, Open, Proud for providers with the idea first is, you know, as a psychologist, I feel like I'm supposed to be healthy and not admit to anybody I have my problems. And so this is meant to be an opportunity for them to consider how to come out. And then second, um, if you're going to do it, how to do it strategically, because if we're going to encourage therapists to disclose their mental illness, we always have to remember that session is about the client, not about the therapist. So disclosure only needs to advance their needs. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting from a coaching modality, because that's what I practice, is that when you share with somebody, you know what, I can I can I can empathize with your struggle here's my experience and here and i'm here to show you what's possible you know my own example is i've come through the other side and you can too and that automatically creates connection and it's all part of the tools that you as a coach or i as a therapist have and so like any tools you try it out on an individual and if it works you know you have something to keep coming back to and if it doesn't you know to tweak it or perhaps go back into your bag for other things but most people I find, um, we as humans respond to mentorship in that way. When we see that somebody has come through something that we can relate to and come out the other side and been able to make the, the lemonade out of the lemons, it acts as inspiration for us to recognize that in ourselves. We're able to see that maybe we possess that spark to do the same. Yeah, I like framing helping profession as mentoring and peers. Because sometimes what looks like magic, because we've gone through all these degrees in graduate school, is really learning nothing more than what our ancestors knew in terms of mentoring people and being wholly there for them as a peer. Yeah. Well, the listening, you know, I don't know about you, but I can, I can, I can't even count how many times someone will say, you know what, that session was really amazing. It was really powerful. You were incredible. And I didn't do anything but just sit there and really listen. Yeah, that was some of the basic lessons that Carl Rogers learned 50 years ago is yep. perhaps the best counseling is just it's not a passive form of listening. It's an active form of listening. It's letting them know you're there and being a mirror back to them. But that can have a big impact. 
what's the unconditional positive regard for another human being, right? That just because you exist means that you are worthy. Absolutely. And there's a little magic. I think there is magic in that. That's been my experience. And so stigma is the message that you're not part of humanity anymore, that, you know, you're distant, you're broken, you're different than everybody else. And so anything that extends a hand that reminds us that we're all together. I mean, one of the things I like to say about mental illness is everybody has had mental health challenges. Everybody has had anxiety and depression. Some of us are hurt more by it or, or the, the troubles last longer. But I think it's familiar to everybody who's listening. Oh, of course. And the, the question becomes, A, if, if it persists, what are you willing to do about it? Because at the end of the day, nobody really does want to suffer. I mean, nobody signs up for it. Says, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to suffer today with depression. It happens. Right. When we work with clients or when, we, when we're in, in community with others who may be going through a hard time, is there something as just a concerned person that we can do for another who we see is going through a hard time? Is there a way to approach somebody that is kind and loving and empathetic that doesn't trespass? Well, I do believe that support is sort of the aspirin of mental health. Um, it can come in many different directions, and sometimes we need to have our antenna up to see what kind of support works for somebody in particular. Um, sometimes it might require a sit-down with them to actually sort of dig a little bit into what's going on. Other times it might be a, a distraction. Let's go do something else. Um, I always like to tell people we, what we really want to do is sharpen our antenna and let the person in need drive the the direction drive the intervention yeah that makes sense you also are the editor of a new journal published by the american psychological association entitled stigma and health talk a little bit about the work that you do over there so i think what i bring to the cause is a sense of numbers uh i think um one of the interesting things is that there's a lot of research about stigma change where we're beginning to find out what doesn't work so well. For example, these whole things of showing mental illness as a brain disorder with neurons and neurochemicals really doesn't help very much. It's contact. Um, that said, I always like to remind myself that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't have a statistician over his head or Gandhi didn't need a methodologist. So we were there to help advocates make decisions about what helps to beat the battle, but we're not there to slow them down. And so the journal is meant to deal with the stigma of all kinds of health conditions. Mental health is prominent. Interestingly enough, another big area for stigma is weight. Um, and then the third is the stigma of HIV AIDS still lingers, even though we're getting so much better at treating the disorder. And I would say addiction bears a huge stigma. Um, in the last couple of months, um, I've been contacted by the government because of the opioid crisis. And so the irony is the more we say those opioid people are, are dirty heroin addicts, the less likely we're building an atmosphere for them to go seek help. So we somehow have to keep everybody in mind that the sudden um, scourge caused by pain relievers um, still can get help through uh, substance use programs, but we don't want to disrespect or discriminate against those who are doing it. And it's interesting. I, I spend a lot of my time working in with this demographic, and a lot of uh, these are young adults. These people are young adults that are addicted to heroin. They didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'm going to you know, become a heroin addict. It, it, it happened. It happened fast in some cases. It happened hard. And these are children. These are somebody's kids that need some TLC and support because they don't really ultimately want to be there and they don't want to die. Yeah, and on top of everything you said, it's a very deadly addiction. Mm. So unlike other behavioral health challenges that you and I help people struggle with, um, this one has an urgency to it. Yes, and that's a, probably a whole other show to talk about that. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe you'll come back again and we can talk about 
the opioid crisis and addiction management and, and, and support because it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking what's going on there, and it knows no um, socioeconomic or cultural bounds. It's out there, and it's on. It's on hard, right? You know. If you're getting a call from the government, you know it more than I do. I think the good news is Washington's sort of understanding it. Yeah. Um, and that these kind of health things are not these micro, tiny little problems. These are public societal problems. And so the kind of discussions you host really will make a big a big difference in that regard. Well, thank you for, for joining me on the show. I hope you'll come back soon. The book is The Stigma of Disease and Disability. The author and my guest today is Patrick Corrigan. To learn more, you can go and learn about the HOP program at www.hopprogram.org, on Twitter at HOP Program, and on Facebook, capital H-O-P Program. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. You know, um... We talk a lot about mental health, and one of the things that I really have begun my own personal crusade on is to destigmatize mental health. And crazy is not talking about the crazy. And my my first guest today really has done just that. David Leet has tackled everything from chocolate chip cookies to fried clams, from the foods of Portugal to the tribulations of being a super taster for print radio, and television. In 1999, he founded the website Leet's Culinaria, and in 2006, he had the distinction of being the first winner ever of the James Beard Award for a website, a feat he repeated in 2007. His first book, The New Portuguese Table, um, Karina marked that, The New Portuguese Table, Exciting Flavors from Europe's Western Coast, explored the food of his heritage and won the 2010 IACP First Book Julia Child Award. David is also a regular correspondent and guest host on NPR's The Splendid Table, actually one of my favorite radio shows. He splits his time between Connecticut and New York, but will travel anywhere for a good meal. Amen, David. And his book that we're talking about today is... Notes on a Banana, a Memoir of Food, Love, and Manic Depression. Hallelujah. Welcome. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Oh, this is um, this is a great subject, mixing food and mental health and your story. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you to writing this book. Well, what brought me to writing this book was I originally was going to write a collection of essays, funny, humorous essays about food, and I was going to pull those that are already pu- already published out there on my uh, website, on my blog, and also Bon Appetit, other magazines I'd written for. And But then something felt wrong. When I put it all together, I realized there was something missing. I wasn't telling my full story. I had already come out online and publicly. People knew that I was gay, and that was a very long struggle, which is also in the book. So that was taken care of. People knew that I loved food, but people did not know that I had bipolar and suffered most of my life. So I decided to sort of test the waters, and I posted um, a uh, a blog post on my website that was called Bipolar Disorder, and Julia Child, my therapist. 
And I was told by my partner, Alan, I think you're making a mistake. You have a food audience. I don't think they're going to take well to this mental illness post, and you may lose readers. And I was told by a lot of colleagues, or some colleagues too, that the same thing would happen. And I thought, no, I, I don't know. And then I, they won out, and I didn't post it for two years. Then I finally did. And when I did, setting aside the congratulations of this is wonderful and brave and courageous of you to do, and thank you for doing this, there were people who started a dialogue. They started saying, I think my wife may have this, or my husband has this, and he doesn't take his medication. But it was a mother who wrote me and who said, I wish my son had read this before he killed himself. It was that email that made me realize I had a responsibility. And also it was a sign to me that I was doing the right thing. So I set aside this idea of funny, um, short essays, and I decided to start digging in to my story in earnest. And not earnest without humor. There's a lot of humor in the book, but in earnest about telling my full story. I told my agent, she's like, I think this is great. I think it's even better because it's more honest. That was what propelled me to start doing the project. Oh, and this is a tremendous project because uh, all of us are touched by mental illness in some way. I know that for me, I was married to somebody with bipolar. I have in the past been clinically depressed. It is in my family genes. It's in the DNA. Mm-hmm. And you sharing mm-hmm. your story and your struggles. And I think those of us that have a voice that we're, we're, we're publishing material, when we share our stories, we get to connect in such a beautiful way. We do. You know, there's some people who can't speak up. For whatever reason, they can't speak up, but they can read. And that allows them to maybe seek the help that they need, seek the comfort that they need. And, you know, the statistics are staggering that it's 19% of the American public has some form of mental illness. 79 million Americans are on psychiatric drugs. Something is going on. There's Definitely, that is substantial. If we said that in any other area of American life, people would consider that vastly important. Why, then, is there not more conversation around this? Because it's mental illness. It's seen as a weakness. And it's not. It's not a weakness. It's just basically faulty brain chemistry. Yeah, and there's so much shame and humiliation around being thought of as crazy. And like we started the show, crazy is not talking about it. Crazy is not having the conversation. Crazy is not getting help. Exactly. It's true. And when I got the diagnosis, which I actually diagnosed myself, it was 25 years after I had a first the first manifestations of something really wrong with me. 25 years later, and I diagnosed myself, and then by reading that wonderful book by Kay Redfield Jameson, An Unquiet Mind. And then uh, I went... I was I, just thinking of that. Book. She's one of my favorite authors. One of my favorites. She actually is providing a uh, blurb, which I'm very excited by. And then I went and I got evaluated by a doctor up at Columbia University, um, and... So I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, which is a more mild form of what K. Redfield Jameson has. But once I got that diagnosis, I was like, hallelujah, hallelujah. I now know what I have. I have something. It's not, it's not weakness. It is not, um, I, I wasn't raised well. It wasn't, you know, my mother ignored me or my father was brutal to me, anything like that. I have a brain, uh, a brain chemistry issue. And once I knew what I had, and I'd been searching for 25 years since I was 11 years old to find out what was wrong with me, then I turned all of my attention on trying to find the right medication, the right medication um, combination. And that took four years for me to find it, well, for my doctors to find it. But it was an unrelenting search until I, found, I finally found it at the age of 40. Bless you, because this is not an easy struggle. I know my ex-husband didn't get a diagnosis till he was in his 60s. Imagine struggling your whole life, not under, you know, well, you did struggle for a good portion of your life, not understanding um, what was going on. And there are many listeners here who it's touched their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And the thing is, you know, when you are, when you have a mental illness and you do something and, and as you're in the act of doing it, let's say uh, um, just being being extraordinarily mean or yelling at my partner or something, and knowing, having the consciousness, this is wrong, this is not the right thing that I should be doing, yet it's almost, you're almost helpless, you can't stop yourself, because something is there, it, 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 before being medicated, it was just, it was so painful, because I had awareness, but I didn't know how to stop something that I couldn't control, 
It's sort of like yeah. having diabetes and going, I have diabetes. Okay, just stop having diabetes. Just stop it right now. Get your blood level under control. Just get, calm it down. You can't. And so yeah. I, so many people I've spoken to have talked about how they just were adrift, and they, they were as bewildered by their behavior as other people are. Now, you talk about your partner, Alan, and to your readers, he's known as the one. And as the one who has been living with you for a couple of decades, congratulations, by the way, how, what are his observations and, and the changes in you as, as you've come out in truth with this? You know, he's been incredibly supportive from the very beginning. Uh, when he heard we were only together three years when I got the diagnosis. Now, he could have bolted. That was his choice. He could have bolted. He decided to stay, and I will be forever grateful. And he saw me through four more years of looking for the right medication, and he was dedicated to staying together, and I really greatly appreciate that. Through the writing of the book, he saw me basically fall apart. This Writing something like this, even though there's so much humor in it, was extraordinarily difficult and very, and very painful. It's revisiting things that I thought actually I had over the course of many years in therapy, had tidily and summarily just finished and not swept under the rug, but it was tied up in a nice package and a nice bow because I was done with it. Well, you yeah. have to haul it back out, and you've got to get all dirty again in order to write about it. So he supported me through that. Now the book is out. He really does believe that the book can have and will have a very powerful impact on people. People will use it as a way of recognizing themselves. Now, this is not a book that tells you these are the five symptoms of manic depression and this is what you need, five symptoms of depression and mania. It doesn't do any of that. I, as a matter of fact, I decided to, and I say this in the author's note, I wanted to keep people, um, I wanted to write this story from the inside out. I wanted to keep people on my journey. So I don't say the word manic depression which is the term I prefer over bipolar. It's more descriptive until three quarters <laughs> of the way into the book. But you see all the symptoms before that, and you're going, oh, my God, how can you not see this? How can you not see this? Because I didn't. There was no one telling me you have a mental illness. Because as when I was finally diagnosed by this doctor, he said it's very hard to distinguish for us between someone who's like you, a type A personality, driven and creative and assertive and, and really just um, you know, going a mile a minute, talking quickly and thinking quickly, and hypomania. It's very difficult for us to determine and really distinguish between that. And Hold that thought, David. Hang on one second. To... We're going to need to jump off to a quick break. Uh, otherwise, I'm sure. going to get spanked. So hold on one second. <laughs> We're going to jump off to learn more about David Leet and his new book, Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. Please visit LeetsCulinaria.com. On Twitter, he can be found at David Leet, and that's L-E-I-T-E. And on Facebook, David Joseph Leet. Here come the tunes. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. 
Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the craziness of not discussing mental health. I really am on a crusade here to destigmatize and celebrate the human need for mental health. And I'm doing so today with my guest, David Leet. He is the author of Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression. And for those of you who are foodies out there, David is a very well-known culinary expert. He's an author. He's got a great website. He's also a guest host on NPR's The Splendid Table. Anybody like that show out there, you can check him out over there. So David, prior to the break, you began talking about the one's observation of you going through this and the process of really uncovering yourself again and Mm -hmm. sort of putting it all back together and moving forward in joy. So talk a little bit about how food helped you in the process. Well, it's interesting because I had not yet really gotten into a food career when this when I first experienced the healing power of food. And that's such a big statement. I want to be very careful that, you know, people don't think I'm fetishizing food because I'm not. But when I had dropped out of college the first time, I dropped out twice because of manic depression, uh, was at Carnegie Mellon University. I was in the acting program and I had dropped out because I just couldn't maintain being in class uh, because I was I was basically falling apart. I had to get a job. The only job that I found was uh, as a cook for a professor at Carnegie Mellon, Not, none of mine, um, but it was this position. And I had to go in and cook between, I think it was like 3 to 5, 5.30, every day, five days a week. And he asked me, you know, do you know how to cook? And I'm like, yes, which was technically true. And did you cook for others? Which was, yes, technically true. <laughs> I have cooked for others. But I had really had no experience. Well, it was in there that I began to understand what food could do for me. I never I wasn't eating the food, but it was the notion of cooking with fresh herbs, which I had never done before, and smelling and, and, and sensing the differences between them and chopping and cutting and watching a pad of butter melt in a, a cast iron skillet and watching it as it slumps to the side of the pan and knowing that, I say in the book, if it starts with butter, I know I will be okay. There was comfort in that rhythmic tuck, tuck, tuck of the knife as I was chopping and the sound of the searing and watching these elements come, to, come together and watching and experiencing food enter my body through you know, sight and sound and smell and tasting as I was tasting it to make sure that the spices and the herbs were correct, the, the seasoning was correct. And it grounded me in a way that I hadn't felt grounded when things were just so skittering out of control those prior months. And that was the beginning of understanding the power of food. I understood the power of food to comfort. And I actually I abused it because I gained a tremendous amount of weight. Uh, but I understood the power of food to, to comfort through eating. I didn't understand the power of cooking to also comfort. And it just, it, I, I talk about having those slight moments. They weren't often, but those glimmers of just happiness amidst all this depression. And I didn't even know I was depressed. I didn't know what I was experiencing. I called it the gloaming. It was the darkness. Mm. And it was just so peaceful to be there. But I, I couldn't sustain the job. I wasn't being paid enough. So I had to go and I had to leave. And it was very sad for both of us. The professor and his family wanted me to stay on and they just couldn't pay. And so, but that was the beginning. And then even to this day, yeah, I think it's Nick Malgeri, a wonderful baker and cookbook author about uh, baking, said that you can't be depressed when you're baking. There's a certain odd logic to that. Baking makes me happy. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, the powerful mindfulness that cooking requires. It demands something of us when we're in the kitchen that takes us out of our brain and puts us in our, in our hands in that create creative mode. So that, I think that is why it's so therapeutically helpful. Mm -hmm. It it gives, you know, if you're not medicated as I wasn't back then, it just gave me a respite. It just gave me a couple of hours a day where 
time became elastic. It, 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 I, I lost sense of time. I lost sense of myself. I lost the sense of obsessing about myself, trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And we need that because the constant assault of anxiety on the nervous system and on the soul is so detrimental, and the, and the constant assault of worrying is so detrimental that without it, I think that you know we would we'd explode. We just we something would happen, and that gave me a relief a release valve, uh, which I'm in hindsight very grateful for. And how wonderful to be able to parlay that relief valve, something that gives you not only relief but a great amount of pleasure, I believe, and use it to um, to serve others, to help others, to empower others to do the same. In your book, your new book, mm-hmm. Notes on a Banana, a memoir of food, love, and manic depression, you talk about aspects of your heritage being Portuguese, which um, mm-hmm. culinary-wise is, uh, I mean, off the charts delicious in my view, and versus waspdom. Talk a little bit about that. Well, when I was growing up, and I'm talking from as early as I can remember to about 12 or 13, uh, basically, you know, I grew up eating things like octopus stew and salt cod and kale and potato and sausage, sausage soup. Uh, my father would eat tripe. And it would be, you know, those aren't things, that, that's, that's all peasant food. And that's what my family grew up on because they were very poor in Portugal, in the Azores, the islands off of the coast of Portugal. And that's what I grew up eating. That's what was put in front of me. Yet when I watched television, I didn't see us on television at all. We were not represented on television. You know, there were no, no kids eating salt cod and purple octopus soup uh, stew. And, and I wanted to be blonde hair and blue eyed, and I wanted to be adopted by Samantha Stevens and Darren Stevens of The Witched. And <laughs> that's what I want. I wanted to eat Velveeta. I wanted to eat McDonald's. I wanted to eat Betty Crocker cakes with chocolate Betty Crocker frosting on it. I wanted to be American by consumption because there had been so many, at least when I was growing up, I interpreted a lot of slurs against the Portuguese. People would say, your father's just a dirty port- Portuguese. And Portuguese is a very ugly word for a Portuguese person. And, and they would say it with such derision that I, I inculcated that. I, I internalized that as something distasteful. So I didn't want that. And so I turned my back on my heritage. I turned my back at a very early age on Portuguese food. And finally, my mother caved in because she said, okay, fine, I just can't have you not eating. And so she started cooking American food for me. And that was when food became the great normalizer. I didn't want to invite anyone over our house to eat octopus. But as soon as she started making hamburgers and tuna, you know, tuna helper, I'm like, hey, come on over my house for dinner. I was so excited that we could have people over. And <laughs> So it was a very difficult time early on, and it was only in my 30s when my grandmother, my mother's mother passed, and recipes that I grew up with disappeared from the table. And my mother had her versions, but they were her versions. They weren't the original. That I realized how intrinsically food is tied to culture and identity. And part of my identity was gone because my grandmother's food had gone. And that's when I began looking into food and looking into Portuguese cuisine. And then it wasn't, it was another six years or so, um, maybe a little bit more, and then I put out my Portuguese cookbook. You know, it's interesting, you, you, you talk about um, Portuguese cuisine, and it, you sound like you grew up on the East Coast, and I think you grew up in Massachusetts, I yeah? I did, yeah. Uh, um, I went to undergraduate school in Massachusetts, and I remember when I was a young lass that my neighbor, who was Portuguese, and this was in Somerville, which, which at the time was the student slums, now it's pretty swank, um, she made Portuguese soup for me. It was cabbage soup with potato and sausage and kale, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. But I had never been exposed to it. Right. And that wasn't, um, wasn't looked down upon in your in that community it was new to you the same way i can look at some foods that people are like oh no you don't want to eat that oh god no because they're ashamed of their particular heritage to me it's like this is really great that's the exact same soup that i grew up eating and i'm like oh i don't want to eat this and i just had such bad connotations so and it's funny because we have i have a lot a lot of family in somerville 
I spent much of my childhood going up and uh, up and back to Somerville on weekends and sometimes in the summer to my grandmother, grandfather, and um, four aunts and one uncle. Uh, yeah, four aunts and one uncle lived in Somerville. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Maybe your neighbor was one of my aunts. Maybe I was on Summer Street, 57 Summer Street near Union Square. Okay, that's not very far from my family was on Foskett Street. Um, oh, my. So <laughs> we were neighbors. Very close. Very close. That's so funny. Well, you know, I think I think that you know the point of of food and the deliciousness of a good meal is this the so the social lubricant, right? Some people do it through alcohol, yeah. some people do it through food, but it's a way that it brings people together and 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 weave such a beautiful cultural story as you've done in this book. You know, I mean, this is a everybody. This is a great book. I really recommend you get out and and buy it and read it because it's filled with lots of love and and lots of truth and. David, I thank you for joining us. We're, we are out of time, so maybe you'll come back again and talk more. Lisa, I, I would love to. Oh, well, let's, let's, let's do it. We'll make a date. The book, once again, is Notes on a Banana, a Memoir of Food, Love, and Manic Depression. My guest has been the fabulous David Leet. To learn more about him, please visit his website, leetsculinaria.com. On Twitter, you can find him at David Leet. And on Facebook, he is David Leet. Joseph Leet, and that's L-E-I-T-E. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and, and your beautiful recipes with us. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Dr. Patrick Corrigan and David Lee, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.